0: Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining me at the Robert J. Morgan podcast, especially during this Christmas season. I don't know if I ever kept my promises or not. When Katrina and I were planning to get married, we decided to write our own marriage vows. I don't know who ever thought that was a good idea, but it was popular back then, and so Katrina and I labored on those vows. I think they must have run about a page and a half. And when it came time for our wedding, we were both so nervous that, at least in my memory, the pastor had to lead us through those vows, each one of us, word for word. And it took a long time. We finally got through them and we were married, but later we lost the things. I think that they were destroyed in the house fire that we had, and we could never afterward remember what we had promised. The only thing we could remember, and this will tell you how ridiculous it was, is this, that somewhere in those vows we promised that we would be intellectually stimulating to each other. Now, in all my years of pastoring, I never heard a couple include anything like that in their wedding vows. Intellectually stimulating. That was the only phrase either of us could ever remember, and so we did try to keep that one. But all those other promises, we never knew if we'd kept them or not because we couldn't remember what we had said. There is no such problem with our Lord. He has made hundreds of promises to us. They are all written down and he will keep every one of them. They are recorded, archived, available, and precious in his word, and he will do just as he promised. We'll get into that in just a moment. First of all, I want to remind you that next year I'm looking forward to going to England with Charles Billingsley for a hymns tour. It's called Then Sings My Soul with Robert J. Morgan and Charles Billingsley. The dates are July 5 through 15 of 2020. There we'll discover the richness of the stories and the inspiration behind many of the best-loved British hymns that have dominated the world for the last 150 years. This this tour will go through several areas of England, and we will visit sites where the great hymns were written, where they were sung. We'll have time in London. It's going to be a marvelous tour uh, that will feature the music of Charles Billingsley. We'll be singing together and learning about the hymns, and you can get more information about this by going to worshipconvergence.com. That is worship. Convergence, W-O-R-S-H-I-P-C-O-N-V-E-R-G-E-N-C-E, worshipconvergence.com, and find out about this wonderful trip, because I'd love to take you with us, and singing will go all across the United Kingdom. Well, just as we look at the great hymns of the faith, so we look at some of the wonderful hymns that we have in the Bible. And on this Christmas season, that's what we'd like to do with the Song of Mary. Turn over with me to the book of Luke in chapter number 37. Luke chapter one and verse 37. Notice this phrase, for no word from God will ever fail. Who said those words? It was the angel Gabriel. That is the way he ended his message to the Virgin Mary about God's promised Messiah. Mary, having received that message, traveled into the Judean hill country to visit her relative Elizabeth. And look what Elizabeth said to her in verse 45. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. And now we come to the famous passage of scripture that is called the Magnificat, after the Latin words with which the phrase or the passage begins. In the Latin version of Luke 1, which was used throughout much of history, the opening words are, and this is in Luke 1, verse 37, Magnificat anima mea dominan. Magnificat means magnify. Anima is that animated part of us, the living part within us, our soul. And mea is me, or of mine, and dominan is the dominant one, the Lord. Magnificat anima mea dominan. Magnify soul of mine, the Lord. And that's the way Mary began her song. It's the song or the hymn of the Virgin Mary after she learned she was to be the mother of Jesus, and it's found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, and I'd like to read it with you because it's quite short. Begin with chapter 1 of Luke and verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Notice that phrase, just as he promised. As I read and studied this beautiful little song, I wondered where Mary got her theology. She was simply an ordinary Jewish girl from a northern village in Israel, and yet she wrote something that sounds like David or Paul or Augustine or Luther. Where did she learn such doctrine? Well, she certainly knew the story of the Old Testament hero, Hannah, who also had a special song and composed a very similar psalm. Many writers have compared the song of Mary with the song of Hannah in the Old Testament, so she probably drew insights from there. But there's another part of the equation. Mary grew up singing the classic hymns known as the Psalms. She had sung them for nearly two decades, and the words were imprinted on their hearts. The Jewish people had a hymn book of 150 psalms, and over time they memorized many or maybe most of them. Mary had the words and the ideas and the language already in her heart because she had been singing these great psalms all her life. I believe she loved them. I went through the Magnificat phrase by phrase and I found about 50 different occurrences or versions or verses in the Psalms that sound very similar to what Mary said in the Magnificat. This is why when I lecture or speak or write on the subject of hymnody and the classic hymns, I talk about the importance of having lifelong lyrics in our hearts and minds. We need music that transcends the generations. Well, Mary had the words of these classic ageless songs in her heart and mind, and along with the model of Hannah's songs, they guided her in writing this wonderful composition. Mary's Magnificat clearly divides into two parts— First, she says what the Lord has done for her, and then she says what the Lord has done for others, for us. So in verses 46 through 49, the first part, she specifically says, this is what the Lord has done for me. Here is what the Lord has done. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I read this over and over again, and it dawned on me that these verses really apply to me as much as they do to Mary. They apply to you and to all of God's children. We glorify and magnify the Lord, and our spirit rejoices. He has been mindful to us and to our needs. He blesses us All the generations can see that God's children are blessed and he does great things for us. Holy is his name. Now, notice the word mindful. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord, for he has been mindful of me. Sometimes we wonder if the Lord has forgotten us, if we're too small or too insignificant for him to notice. Well, take a moment and turn over to Psalm 139, verses 16, 17, and 18. In the New International Version, it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God! How vast the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Now, notice two things about this. In the margin of the New International Version, it offers an alternate reading. How amazing are your thoughts concerning me! God thinks about us amazingly, constantly, and the number of his thoughts towards us is greater than all of the grains of sand in all of the oceans of the world. He is mindful of us as he was mindful of Mary. But notice, secondly, that this is how God thinks about us while we are sleeping, all night long, as we're asleep or tossing and turning in our beds, the Lord is thinking about us. And when we awaken, He is still thinking of us and present with us. He is mindful of us by day and by night. He is mindful of you. And He was mindful of Mary. She said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. But now beginning in verse 50, Mary is going to tell us what the Lord is doing for us. Notice how her song turns to others. It's remarkable how quickly she stopped praying for herself and started praying for other people. We see that with the opening words of verse 50. His mercy extends. It isn't just to me. It extends to others. It extends to the whole world. His mercy extends. Those three words are so special. His mercy extends. God has been merciful to me, Mary was saying, but not just to me. His mercy extends to all of those who fear his name from generation to generation. And now, notice how as we go through this passage, she is going to use the phrase, he has, to amplify the fact that in sending Jesus into the world, the Lord has kept the promises His made. So let's begin reading this as uh, where we left off in the Magnificat. She said, His mercy Extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So verse 50 sets the theme for this section. His mercy extends to those who fear him. To fear the Lord means to respect him, to stand in awe of him, to regard him as the supreme course and force in our lives, and we know that he has kept us and is keeping his promises to us, and so Mary lists seven of them using this particular formula he has. First, she says he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. In the Bible, the arm of the Lord is synonymous with his strength. Now, human arms can be pretty strong. A baseball pitcher can throw a baseball over 100 miles an hour. I still don't see how that's even possible. But the arm of God can fling the stars and the planets throughout the universe. A strong man can lift nearly a 1,000 pounds, but the hand of the Lord can raise the mountains and scoop out the cavernous wastelands of the sea. What Mary had in mind in this passage was perhaps the parting of the Red Sea, which was the greatest miracle of the Old Testament. I want to show you how some of what Mary said in her Magnificat is drawn from visuals in the Psalms. So look at Psalm 77 and verse 15. Psalm 77, verses 15 through 20. The psalmist wrote, "'With your mighty arm.'" Now, you see, there's the phrase that Mary used. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water and the heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waves, though your Footprints were not seen. In other words, this is a very graphic, Description of God's arm reaching down into the wilderness and churning up the elements, and with cataclysmic phenomena, God parted the waters and made a pathway through the mighty waves of the Red Sea for his children to escape from Egypt, though his footprints were not seen. This is the same mighty arm that reached down to help Mary and that reaches down to help us and to guide us. We don't always see his footprints, but we feel the whoosh of the air as his arm moves on our behalf. Second, Mary said, he has scattered those who are proud in heart. And maybe she drew this from Psalm 89 and verse 10. The writer there said, you crushed Rahab or Egypt. Like one of the slain with your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. Now think of the enemies that we have right now. We have military enemies. We have people uh, all around the world who would like to destroy us. We're surrounded by people who have a hostile attitude against a biblical worldview. We have the devil and all of his forces against us and we have other enemies. We have enemies such as disease and illness and death, which the Bible describes as the last enemy, but God scatters them all with the coming of Christ. There is here in him the scattering and the eventual defeat of all his enemies. Third, Mary said in her Magnificat, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. Now, I found at least five similar statements to this in the Psalms, but the most apparent to me is Psalm 2. This is a great messianic psalm. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us break their chains and throw down their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, when Mary composed her song, the most powerful man in the world was the leader of Rome, Caesar Augustus. The ruler of Judea was King Herod the Great. But within a short time, both of these men were dead. And the baby of Mary, Jesus Christ, was on his way to becoming the centerpiece of history. And then fourthly, Mary said, "He has lifted up the humble," and she put herself in that category as being someone who was not known around the world, not rich, not famous, but in humble circumstances. And I've found four different cross references to this in the Psalm. For example, just one. Look at Psalm 25, verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord; therefore, he instructs sinners in his way. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. When we have a heart of humility, then the Lord can step right in and bless us and guide us in what is right and teach us his way, as he did for Mary. Fifthly, Mary said in her song, he has filled the hungry with good things. Well, with this statement, um, we have almost a word-for-word rendition from Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9, where the psalmist said, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. This is about God's ability to meet our needs, and not just to meet them in a grudging way, but he fills us with things. He fills us with good things. He fills our lives and satisfies us with all of the blessings that there are to have. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. But sixth, it says He has sent the rich away empty. Psalm 49, verse 12 says, People, despite their wealth, do not endure. And finally, Mary sums it all up in this wonderful phrase, "'His helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors.'" And maybe she drew this from Psalm 146 that says, "'Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord our God.'" well, we can all sum it up like this. The Virgin Mary was magnifying God because he was sending a king to the earth who would fix all of the problems, correct all of the wrongs, judge all of the wicked, bless all of the humble, and bring about true economic justice, racial justice, legal justice, and moral justice in this universe. The only genuine just as there is, is what Jesus ushers in with his kingdom. This process began with his first coming, and it will be consummated with his second coming. Mary saw all of this as the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with the patriarchs of Israel to send them a Redeemer, a Rescuer, a Savior, and a Messiah. She understood at least to some degree that her offspring was going to be the source and the center of all God's answers to all of his problems, and as I looked at these seven statements, I thought of how Jesus, in fact, did, even during his earthly, natural lifetime in the gospel, fulfill these statements. For no word of God shall ever fail. Blessed is the one who believes that the Lord will fulfill his promises, and they will, he will keep them all, just as he has said." Well, let's take these seven things of Mary in reverse order and see how even during his earthly lifetime, Jesus fulfilled them. First, he helped people. For example, one day our Lord was leading a Bible study in Peter's house. The place was crowded. It was standing room only. There was a large mass of people around the house, and as Jesus taught, there was a commotion over his head, and some men began removing tiles. A stream of sunlight came into the living room, and in a few minutes, something else came too, or someone else, a paralyzed man being lowered on a pallet. The man swung down and landed at the feet of Jesus, just like we sometimes do. Jesus looked down at the man and said something very unexpected, "'Son,' Your sins are forgiven. And then he told him to take up his pallet and walk home on his own two legs, which he did as the amazed crowd parted to let him through. The Bible says that Jesus went around doing good. He helped people, and he still does. He helps us. Second, he sent the rich away empty. One day a rich man came to Jesus and said, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, just make me the center of everything in your life. Follow me. And the man wasn't willing. He came to Jesus thinking he was rich, but he left knowing that he was bankrupt in his heart. On the other hand, the Lord filled the hungry with good things. Do you remember when he was teaching in Galilee and thousands of people massed in the fields and valleys, Around the sea, none of them with anything to eat. Jesus took took a few bits of food and looked up to heaven and blessed it, and he began breaking it. And with those few loaves and fish, he filled the thousands of people that were following him with good things, with good food, and with more left over to spare. He also lifted up the humble. One day in John chapter eight, a woman was dragged before him and accused of sexual immorality. Jesus took it all in, stooped down, and wrote some words on the ground. Maybe he was writing the first four of the Ten Commandments. He looked at the crowd and he said, you who are sinless among you, throw the first stone. Then he bent down and began writing again. Perhaps he was writing the last six of the Ten Commandments, which we've all broken in one way or the other. When he finished, he looked up and saw there was no one to accuse her. They had all left one after another. They had all drifted away. Jesus looked at her and said, where are those who condemn you? Well, neither do I. Go and give up your life of sin. He lifted up the humble, and he also brought rulers down to size. One day, some of our Lord's enemies taunted him, telling him that King Herod was going to kill him. Jesus said, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. Jesus was undaunted by political threats. When he stood before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor said, Don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? Jesus said you would have no power over me at all had it not been given to you from above. Pilate had no answer for that and he's gone down in history as the most haunted man maybe of all time. And then our Lord scattered those who were proud. Do you remember when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the last night of his earthly life? It was late and cold and everyone was exhausted. Suddenly, a mob showed up, Judas Iscariot, leading a contingent of Roman soldiers into the garden and they identified Jesus, when the soldiers came to arrest him, suddenly they were forced back by an invisible energy field that burst from his very being. The Bible says that when Jesus said, I am he, in response to their inquiries, they were pushed back and fell to the ground like the keystone cops. Well, the Bible doesn't say the keystone cops, but that's about what it was like. He scattered his enemies. They were eventually able to arrest him only because he allowed it. And finally, he performed mighty deeds with his arms. And no more powerful moment has ever occurred in heaven or on earth than that moment when the strong, bare arms of the carpenter of Nazareth were stretched out horizontally on the crossbeam of Calvary while his hands were spiked to the cross. He died as if reaching out with his arms to embrace all of humanity, and in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the son of Mary, all of the promises of God were purchased and redeemed for all the people. So no word from God will ever fail. Blessed is the one who believes that the Lord will fulfill his commandments. He will keep all of them just as he promised. That is the essence of the song of Moses. And so we say with her, Magnificat anima mea Dominum," Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. Well, thank you for studying the Magnificat with me. I hope that this was helpful to you. And again, if you're interested in the great hymns of the faith, the Magnificat is one of the great hymns of the Bible. But we have a series of books called Then Sings My Soul, telling the story of the classic hymns. We also have a book called A Song and My Heart, which is a daily devotional based upon the hymns. And then we have the upcoming tour in July, a hymn tour, a Then Sings My Soul tour of the United Kingdom with Charles Billingsley and me, July 5 through 15, with information available at worshipconvergence.com worshipconvergence.com. And for all of our other resources, check out my website, robertjmorgan.com. And thank you for listening to this podcast. Please recommend it to others. It is produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media, edited by Courtney Warner. Music is by Elijah Rowe. Thank you again for listening, and may the Lord be with you until we meet again.